This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. Two men are due in court in connection with a road rage incident that resulted in one man being hospitalized. It happened over the weekend on Bowen Island. That's where our Nadia Stewart is for us tonight. Nadia, the victim's injuries are tough to look at. What are RCMP saying about what happened? Well, RCMP are hoping more witnesses will come forward. Now, this was a pretty serious fight, and we can show you some photos of the victim. They're a little tough to look at, but take a look here. This is 53-year-old Gerald Morriso. He was taken to hospital this past weekend following a fairly brutal fight that left him pretty badly beaten. Now, at this point, there are more rumors than facts, but what we do know from the RCMP is that Morriso was on his way to pick up his son from work at Tuscany's on Bowen Island. Police say three men were walking in the middle of Bowen Island Trunk Road. Now, the allegation is that Morriso narrowly missed the pedestrians, but what exactly happened next is still very unclear. Apparently, words were exchanged and the situation got out of hand. What we do know now is that two men have been arrested and will soon be back in court. Meanwhile, police are investigating but are calling for some calm in the community, especially as rumors are swirling on social media. We've already heard quite a few of them in the time that we've been here. Now, of course, people on this typically quiet island are very upset. There is uh, some speculation that's happening on social media. Um, as, as you all know, I'm sure Bowen Island is a very tight-knit community and we can understand that that speculation is in place, but we would just ask that while the investigation is ongoing, that you allow that investigative process to take place, allow our investigators to interview the witnesses, to gather the evidence, and then we can allow the evidence to lead the investigation. It doesn't matter who was to you know, who started it, but the fact that he was beaten up that badly, it goes beyond a little fight about whatever it was, you know? So it's, it's just shocking because of the brutality. Now, the key thing here is that police are calling for more witnesses. In the RCMP press release that we received, it says that there were many calls to 911. So either these people did or did not stick around. That is not clear. But the police are hoping that anyone who saw anything that night will give them a call. Back to you. All right. Thanks for that. Nadia Stewart on Bowen Island for us tonight. And now to the wildfire situation in the province. And there are a number of aggressive wildfires burning in northwestern B.C., prompting evacuations. The Stikine complex of nine wildfires is located near the remote communities of Telegraph Creek and Dees Lake. Several hundred people have been evacuated and Highway 51 has been closed. Telegraph Creek is being hit particularly hard by those fires. Okay, we're going to all leave now. This video was taken last night from the top of Sawmill Lake, right above the town. More than two dozen structures have been lost. Officials say there has been a 35 to 40 percent structural loss in the town. Our town has sustained significant damage. 
but there's no life, life loss. Um, you know what? We are the community. That's the town. We are the community. We are resilient. We're going to lean on each other, and we're going to try to uh, continue to uh, fight the fight as best we can. Now, meantime, a wildfire in the Nanaimo Lakes area, which is about 30 kilometers south of Nanaimo, has forced campers and those in nearby cabins out. Kylie Stanton has more on how people are coping and the strategy of fire crews tackling this blaze. From the sky and on the ground, crews douse the flames, trying to gain control of the Nanaimo Lakes fire that continues to grow. The most recent uh, size estimate that we've gotten for this fire suggests that it's 131 hectares in size. So right now it is still considered out of control um, and 0% contained. The regional district of Nanaimo has declared a state of local emergency, issuing an evacuation order for the areas outlined in red and an alert for the surrounding residences in yellow. Just working on the siding and, and flooring. And Joelle Green's home is one of the 77 properties in that area. It's taken a year and a half to get her dream house to this point, but right now everything has been put on hold. Wondering what's going to happen next, if it's going to spread. The fire is currently moving in the west-northwest direction, away from the alert area. But many here aren't taking any chances. Everybody's got their bags packed and the things they need. and There's nothing you can do about it. You just kind of go with the flow. And this is like an electric hose reel. Mike Gogo, on the other hand, isn't planning on going anywhere. We're equipped for this. Every year it gets drier and drier and drier. He purchased this fire truck a while back and has it in working order. Hoses are already positioned around his property. This is a family farm has been here since 1897. We've got a little, little thing like a forest fire office. The Coastal Fire Centre is encouraging residents to leave it to the professionals. Today there are 55 personnel on site, half a dozen helicopters, heavy machinery and an air tanker on standby. And that's just here. To the north near Port Alberni at the Turtle Lake fire, crews worked through the night to contain a smaller blaze and it seems they've been successful. Had a crew of 10 and an engine and a tanker haul water all night and sprayed some, some of the hot spots and stopped it from advancing. Residents can only hope the same thing will happen here and soon. No one wants to leave everything they've worked so hard for behind. We don't want to see it go up in smoke, so we'll do everything we can to protect it, and hopefully it'll be okay. Kylie Stanton, Global News, near Nanaimo. And it seems the worst is over for firefighters in the Zamilkameen region, although there is still plenty of work to do. This is an aerial view of the Snowy Mountain Fire, the largest fire burning in the area. It stretches across 12,000 hectares of steep forested terrain. And while it is now burning away from populated areas, it's only about three kilometers from the U.S. border. Crews are currently conducting burn-off operations on the south flank to remove fuels and halt the fire's progression. And thankfully, reinforcements are arriving to assist our crews. If we had those sort of fires in New Zealand, we'd all be living in the sea. A group of 60 or so firefighters and support staff from New Zealand arrived late last night, joining dozens of Mexican firefighters already here, as well as extra crews from across Canada. Well, Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley are under a heat warning, with temperatures expected in the mid-30s over the next few days. As Aaron MacArthur reports, it's pushed the fire rating to extreme in many parks today, prompting fire officials to issue a warning. Early Tuesday morning, a spot fire in Port Moody. Quickly extinguished, but a warning. The conditions ripe 
for something much worse to happen. We haven't had a lot of lightning strikes or weather uh, events in the area, so we know that these are probably, or almost assuredly, human-caused. By midday Tuesday, the fire rating ramped up to extreme. Firefighters posting warnings around Port Moody. No open flames in outdoor public spaces. No cigarettes, no barbecues. What we've come across is with this long period of, or this long stretch is with those high temperatures and low humidity creates a perfect opportunity for combustion at the forest floor. The ban on open flames now extends across Metro Vancouver parks. Managing people's expectations of what a day at the beach or park should be like could be the biggest challenge facing understaffed local governments. Metro Vancouver urging people to police themselves. Be really vigilant. We need eyes and ears out there to let us know what, what's uh, happening. Um, if you smell smoke, um, let us know. Um, it's, it's really important to be, um, to be really aware of our, these critical situations. There have been several small brush fires across Metro Vancouver. Nothing that has caused much in the way of real damage, but the concern, very much real. Some of these areas haven't seen rain in weeks. It's, uh, you know, all the brush under there is tinder dry. It's, it's very dangerous right now. There is some moisture in the forecast, but not enough. It could take three or four days, maybe a week of significant rainfall to downgrade the current extreme conditions. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with more on the heat and what we should expect in the coming days. Christy? So the heat wave brought record-breaking temperatures again today. Pitt Meadow being one of them, hitting 32 degrees. And many other parts of the lower mainland also sizzling at 32, 33 degrees. Now tomorrow, it's going to get even hotter. Areas away from the water will reach 34 degrees. With the Humidex, it'll feel closer to 35, 36 degrees. And it's going to stay even hotter or stay hot on Thursday. Now the good news is this heat wave won't be as long as the last one. We will see some relief on Friday. And I'm sure people will be thankful for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Christy. Breaking details now on a house fire in East Vancouver this morning. Investigators confirming a body has been found and the coroner is on scene. Fire crews were called to the home at Skeena Street and East 3rd just before 9 a.m. The family who lives upstairs managed to get out safely, but the tenant of the downstairs suite was unaccounted for and late this afternoon came confirmation that a body was found inside the home. Well, residents in a normally quiet Surrey neighborhood are rattled tonight. The integrated homicide investigation team has taken over a case involving a stabbing. And while that victim was rushed to hospital in stable condition, a second man who was later dropped off with serious injuries died. As Grace Key reports, police believe the two incidents are linked. This Surrey townhouse complex is behind yellow police tape after a man was rushed to hospital with stab wounds. Police were called to 108th Avenue and 152nd Street at about 4.30 Monday afternoon. I just looked out the window and saw a bunch of police cars. I didn't go over there. It was, it was uh, roped off with the yellow police lines. The stabbing victim is now recovering in hospital. A short time after police were called to the area, another man was dropped off at a local hospital suffering from serious injuries. He later died. Police believe the two incidents are related. The victim has been identified, however the name will not be released. What I can tell you is the victim is known to police and this is not believed to be a random act. 
Police are looking at any units that may be connected to the investigation. Many residents say they didn't hear or see anything suspicious prior to the stabbing. Never, Never. had a problem. Nothing like this anyway, no. Nothing. A lot of violence in Surrey in general, so starting to escalate, so there need to be something about it. No arrests have been made yet, and a motive is unclear. Grace Key, Global News. New documents show expanding the Trans Mountain Pipeline could cost the federal government as much as $2 billion beyond the company's original construction estimate. Keith Baldry joins us with more on this. Keith, it's not only going to cost more, it will take longer to complete as well. Yeah, a number of scenarios are outlined in what's called a shareholder's circular put together by the bankers for Kinder Morgan, uh, TD Securities, to give shareholders some information on exactly what to expect should the pipeline be sold or expanded. So it came up with three scenarios. One, outright cancellation. Second one, uh, increasing costs, capital costs to more than $8 billion in completing it in the year 2020. And the third one, potentially the most uh, significantly expensive one, increasing the cost to more than $9 billion and, and not completing it until 20. 2021. Now, all this information prepared for shareholders at Kinder Morgan, they will vote on August 30th on whether or not uh, to accept the sale proposal from the federal government. Either way, it's a very expensive project, uh, no matter which scenario is actually realized, Sophie, but uh, both the banks and I can tell you the finance ministry in Ottawa I talked to today feel confident that no matter what the cost of the pipeline, it's still going to be a moneymaker from their point of view. But of course, the controversies will continue, the protests will continue as construction begins to get ramped up later this month. All right. All right. Thanks for that, Keith Baldry in Victoria. First, though, red light cameras are now up and running 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 140 locations across B.C. The provincial government says it's a matter of safety, given that so many crashes happen in intersections. But it's what those cameras will be capable of next that has critics crying foul. Ted Trinecki reports. Hastings and Renfrew. This is one of 140 intersections that now have a red light camera operating all the time. Now watch the blue SUV in the left turning lane. He moves on a yellow, but it's the motorist behind him who enters the intersection on a red light and turns left. He's poised to get a ticket in the mail. In 15 minutes here, in fact, during every traffic cycle, we saw someone entering the intersection on a red light. It's about improving safety. And it's about in, you know, reducing the number of crashes, which means you're reducing the number of fatalities, you're reducing the number of, the number of injuries. But it's what's coming next that can be controversial. After reviewing the red light data, this fall, a still unspecified number of these cameras will be upgraded to have the ability to record speed. Motorists will get tickets for excessive speeding even on a green light. Alleged offenders will be mailed both a photo and a speed recorded by radar, just don't call it photo radar. It's exactly photo radar with a couple of minor details changed. But at the end of the day, you've got a system that's designed to take photos of people's cars and get them to give the government money. Photo radar was first introduced in the 1990s by the NDP. It was hugely unpopular and played a significant role in getting the Liberals re-elected in 2001. You cannot support a radar ticket without a visual estimation. That's why it failed in the 1990s and it was a political nightmare. I'm surprised they're bringing it in again, uh, but they have to stem the flow that's bleeding out from ICBC. The province claims this is different because as this map shows, there are no secrets. You can see where every red light camera is now operational and there'll be roadside signage warning you. But critics say as long as there isn't a police officer there to visually identify who's actually driving, safety isn't likely to improve. 
you're driving your Ferrari through that intersection, are you overly concerned about that ticket that doesn't show up on your driving record? Really, it's just a cost of doing business for a lot of people. Because these robotic law enforcement cameras cannot identify who's driving, the fine goes to the registered owner of the vehicle, and there are no driver demerit points. Ted Chernacki, Global News. We now know who came out on top in this year's Celebration of Lights fireworks competition. South Korea beat out South Africa and Sweden in the annual festival. Nearly half a million people packed English Bay to witness the final performance this past Saturday. This year, all three teams coordinated their musical choices to the theme of love. And South Korea obviously didn't disappoint, even including the viral hit Gangnam Style. Hundreds of people packed a Langley church today to say goodbye to a little girl found dead in a nearby condo last month. Police are calling the death a homicide, but saying little about the suspect in the tragedy. As Catherine Urquhart reports, today was all about coming together to remember a life cut too short. Devastated friends and family gathered at Christian Life Assembly in Langley to say goodbye to a much-loved little girl. Seven-year-old Aliyah Rosa, described as beautiful and lively, many wore her favorite colors, pink and purple. There were two words, I think, that were said, love and family. And I think that's how uh, Steve, the dad, is getting through, because of a community of people around him and a close family as well. Aliyah's body was found in a Langley apartment July 22nd, and a 36-year-old woman was taken to hospital. So far, no arrests have been made in the case. Just want to take the opportunity to thank uh, the members of the public who did come forward with tips and information on that investigation. And we're certainly looking to people who have yet to come forward that have information to please come forward today and speak with AHIT. Court documents reveal Aliyah's father had sole custody in 2016, her mother subject to a restraining order. Supervised visits were granted last year, followed by unsupervised visits. The Ministry of Children and Family Development won't comment about Aliyah's death. Back at the service, Aliyah's former Sparks leader remembered her fondly. Our favorite memory as a group was when we were cookie selling, and Girl Guide cookies are $5 a box. But Aaliyah would walk up to the door and say, two boxes for $10, and she sold two boxes every time. <laughs> she was beautiful, lively, so much fun. Aaliyah's homicide, tragic and senseless. Her loved ones now left holding on to their many precious memories. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. It was a development that divided a Vancouver neighborhood. Now it's been six months since residents moved into temporary modular housing in Marple. And although the community housing project faced a lot of pushback, it is making a big difference in the lives of those who live there. Tanya Beja reports. It's been like I've died and went to heaven. Charlie Smythe has his own front door. Oh, welcome home. A kitchen where he now cooks, a place to feel safe. This is home. I got a home to come home to now instead of, I don't know, a park bench. <laughs> Smythe was homeless for seven years before moving into a temporary modular housing unit in Marpole. He now works full time as a chef and says he's regained his self confidence. How are you guys doing today? 
and get up and shave when you want to and you don't have to go to you know to to community centers to take baths or showers and it's it's home I'm blessed. Smythe is one of 78 people living in the complex. Building managers say his success is not unique. Others have returned to the workforce, reunited with their families, or simply seen a doctor. They've actually sought out medical care sometimes for the first time in a while and have found out that they actually have serious diagnoses. We've had people that have undergone cancer treatment and other things like that, and they just didn't know it when they were on the street. Neighbors protested when the project was first announced, fearing it was too close to local schools. Vancouver police have attended 25 times since residents moved in, but no neighbors have complained to the building since April. It's been quite low that we've had any police response here in terms of the calls, and, and the ones that they have come for have been quite um, minor and had no impact on the community. The city of Vancouver is halfway to its goal of opening 600 modular housing units. The next challenge, finding permanent homes. We're just working across the city to try and create as many new opportunities for social and affordable housing as possible so that when the time comes for people to move, they have some choices about where they can go. With a roof over his head, Smythe's plan now to keep working until retirement. I don't have to worry about things anymore, you know. Um, like, you know, where am I going to sleep tonight or, you know, things like that. And, you know, there's no, the stress is gone. Tanya Beja, Global News. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. High temperatures are fueling the largest fire in California's history. Twin blazes have merged to create the massive Mendocino complex fire raging in the state's north, and it's still growing. Thousands of homes remain in jeopardy as firefighters struggle to gain control. Firefighters have never seen anything like it. The Mendocino Complex fire, now the size of Los Angeles, exploding into the largest inferno in California history. It's ripping across mountains and neighborhoods. Crews are doing their best to get in there right now, but this fire is just really outrunning us. With 11,000 structures threatened, we were on the front lines with firefighters as 75 homes were destroyed. Crews are doing all they can to beat back these flames. And countless others were narrowly saved. Tonight, 14,000 firefighters are stretched thin across California, many working grueling 24-hour shifts. Across the state, more than 2,000 homes are destroyed, 619,000 acres up in smoke. Look at that. Fueled by record heat, the fires are creating their own weather. Fire NATO spinning at 150 miles per hour, forcing immediate evacuation. The flames had already come up over the hill. It was racing us and it was catching us. So far this year, fires have claimed at least nine lives, a death toll that may climb. The most destructive fire, still burning near Redding, has left an apocalyptic wasteland in its path. But the largest fire in California history, and the biggest in the nation, is still on the move, with the most dangerous days still ahead. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News, Lake County. 
The diplomatic dispute between Canada and Saudi Arabia is growing. It started with a Friday tweet from Ottawa calling for the release of jailed activists. Since then, the kingdom has hit back with measures halting everything from education to airline flights. Mercedes Stevenson reports. The Trudeau government stood its ground today in an escalating spat with Saudi Arabia. Grilled over how much the diplomatic row could cost the Canadian economy and business, Finance Minister Bill Morneau focused on principles over profits. We're going to stand uh, with uh, the values that we know are important to Canadians and Saudi Arabia will take the decisions that they will take. Last year there was about $4 billion in trade between Canada and Saudi Arabia. But that's about to change. The Saudi government is punishing Canada economically for criticizing human rights abuses in the kingdom. Canada tweeted in both English and Arabic, demanding the immediate release of women's rights activists who had been jailed as part of a widespread crackdown on dissent. Angry over the rebuke, the Saudis are cutting ties. After kicking out the Canadian ambassador, they have forbid new trade or business deals, are refusing to buy Canadian grain, demanding Saudi foreign students studying in Canada come home, terminating flights by the state airline to and from Canada, and threatening to interfere in Canada's business here at home. We've... Uh got a strong economy. We know that Canadians uh, stand behind us. The move could halt a controversial deal to sell Canadian-made armoured personnel carriers to the Saudis, a project that human rights groups have opposed. Today, the company making the vehicles refused to reveal the status of the deal. General Dynamics Land Systems Canada declines to comment, they said. Questions to the Foreign Affairs Minister's office about whether the deal had been halted went unanswered. Sources in the defence industry say they are concerned about the chill this will put over the industry. Despite the concerns of some, others saw this as an opportunity for Canada. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe advocated ditching Saudi oil for Canadian bitumen, tweeting, our nation can and should replace imported oil from Saudi Arabia and all foreign dictatorships, and Western Canada should supply it, say through a pipeline. An idea the Oil Industry Association seemed to back. In a statement, they said geopolitical tensions illustrate the opportunity we have to improve energy security within our own borders. At the end of the day, the question remains whether Canada's position will improve the human rights conditions for Saudi Arabia or if it is all just a war of words. I think Canada and Saudi Arabia don't have a lot to lose and that's why they were quite willing to make Canada sort of the example and the signal to the rest of the world because the economic trade ties are pretty minor in the big scheme of things. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa. Well, for those parents starting to think about back-to-school shopping, listen up. Experts say many young students are packing too much into those school bags. The Mayo Clinic says backpacks shouldn't weigh more than 15% of a child's body weight. To help lessen the load, they recommend leaving unnecessary supplies in lockers or at home and use smaller packs with wider straps. Well, self-driving cars are supposed to be the way of the future, but a new report is raising safety concerns. It turns out automated vehicles may not spot stopped vehicles, reminding drivers you always need to keep your eyes on the road, no matter how good technology promises to be. Earlier this year, this Tesla crashed into a highway divider in California, killing the driver. Another slammed into a parked fire truck in Utah. Both had the autopilot feature on. Today, in a new report, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety warned that electronic driver assistance systems may not see stop vehicles and could even steer you into a crash if you're not careful. If you 
get the impression that you can let the system do the driving for you, you could find yourself in trouble. Five car models were tested, two Teslas and one Mercedes, BMW, and Volvo. On a track, the group found two of the Teslas, the Model S and Model 3, hit a stationary balloon when they had adaptive cruise control on. On the road, it found all the vehicles, but Tesla's Model 3 failed to respond to stop cars ahead of them. Tesla, Mercedes, and Volvo did not respond to our request for comment. About 50 to 70 percent are, are interested. But this BMW dealership did invite us into its showroom and stressed that driver assistance technology provides only an added layer of safety. Should people rely on these features? Absolutely not. It's still a situation where the driver needs to remain engaged. There is no substitute for human judgment on the road. Tesla owner Ralph Mupin says driverless features aren't worth it yet. I think it's kind of a half-baked idea and people are trusting it a little bit too much. The Insurance Institute says its findings reinforce the dangers of testing self-driving technology on public roads. Something's lurking in the water. The close encounter with a great white caught on video right after Christie's forecast. Yikes. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right, Christy Gordon joins us now uh, mm. once again with a look at our forecast. Record setting, Christy. That's right. Looking at the stats for the last 30 years, record breaking again. Trail hitting 36.6, Pemberton 36.3, and Port Alberni hitting 35.2 degrees. Incredible heat. And there were more of them across the province. Hotspot again across Canada, Lytton at 36.7 degrees. Now, as I mentioned, Squire, you just walked past my... my <laughs> Hello, Squire. <laughs> You'll see Squire in a little bit. All right. As I mentioned, though, the good news is this heat wave is not going to last as long as the last one. Last one, we had it for 10 days. We're only going to see it for three days before it shifts ease. But by Thursday, it's really going to heat up for those of you in the southern interior. Metro Vancouver, away from the water, two more really hot days. 34 tomorrow, 32 Thursday. And then we really start to see relief Friday and into Saturday. And then we rebound Sunday and into next week. Those of you in the interior, you have three more hot days with the hottest day being on Thursday, potentially up to 40 degrees in a lot of areas and then dropping down significantly on Saturday. Boy, you'll be breathing a sigh of relief on Saturday. But the concern is on Saturday is it comes with lightning and a number of gusty winds potentially. So we'll be watching that. Air quality advisory right across the province, not across the lower mainland. But as we start to see that upper level ridge shift further inland, we'll start to see a bit more outflow. And at that point, that's when we could start to see hazy conditions push into our area. So later tomorrow and into Thursday, I'm expecting it to be a bit hazier for the southern interior, or sorry, for the south coast regions. There's your forecast for tomorrow. And partly cloudy across the north. That mainly cloudy for Prince George and across the Caribou region. That's smoke, widespread smoke expected in your area, whereas these areas with sunny, it will be more local smoke. So uh, smoke sort of passing here and there. But certainly hot, 36 to 38 degrees tomorrow Again, Thursday will be the hottest for you. South Coast regions up to 34 degrees tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the peak of our heat. A little cooler, but staying hot Thursday. Late Friday showers and a risk of thunderstorms dropping in temps. Saturday showers, but we rebound on Sunday. And I want to show you this photo. I love this shot from Susan Flowerdew. Great name for this photo. But also, I love how you can see the wings. Instead of it flying like this, it goes like this. And that's how the hummingbird. <laughs> hovers. Isn't that you cool? you show us again? Like that. <laughs> That's very you see what I mean? I've done that once before. It's a new <laughs> I think I'm so weird. I know there's a lot of people at home that now are going, no. oh, yeah. 
That's a great picture. <laughs> Thank you, Christy. A top shark expert has a close encounter with a great white that surprised even him, and it's all caught on camera. Oh, holy! That's Greg Scomo there at the end of the extended bow of a research vessel. He was on a tagging trip just off Cape Cod when, as you see, the great white breached the water and jumped up with its jaws open. The conservancy group that released the video says, while encounters like this are rare, this video shows they are certainly possible. One of the most recognizable homes ever to be featured on the small screen now has new owners. Here's the story of a lovely lady. The Brady Bunch house has been sold to HGTV. The iconic home in L.A. was listed for just under $2 million. Final sale price has not been revealed. The sale of the home sparked a bidding war that included former NSYNC member Lance Bass. But he tweeted today that he can't be mad for losing to the channel that his television is stuck on. No word yet on what the lifestyle TV giant plans to do with the home. Two million seems like a bargain. It does, doesn't it? And, mm-hmm. and because Alice kept that thing spotless. <laughs> exactly. So that tonight we're just continuing the theme of '80s sitcom. Mm-hmm. Um, that's seventies. Earworm for you. I guess it is. Oh, that's yeah, that's back. right. Seventies. Yeah. Okay, so tomorrow it'll be the '60s. <laughs> that's what we'll do. Sorry, I, I, I jumped in front of your shot there. I thought this thing was broken. <laughs> it, it it's does got have an unhappy face, face on, it. on it. It's not. It can't move. For the same height. Yes, I know. As it should be. Yes, I know. (laughs) We want to be equal in this program. All right. Squire, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you. Apparently, Mm -hmm. apparently, Americans will watch CFL football if Johnny Manziel is playing. They don't even care if he's not playing any good. They'll still watch. His debut last Friday was actually the equivalent of watching that $80 streaker at the Mariners (laughs) game this weekend. You'll never forget what you saw. For all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Manziel's four-interception game against Hamilton was the highest-rated CFL game on ESPN in the States since they started showing Canadian games way back in 1980. Now, the Canadian ratings, they were okay, not outstanding. More people watched the Rough Riders and Eskimos game last week, but Saskatchewan games always get a good audience. Manziel will start this week against Ottawa. He should get better. He really wasn't ready to start that game last week. He barely knew the Alouettes' playbook. But Montreal is bad, and it needs Manziel, even a not-ready Manziel, to stoke interest in this team. Speaking of quarterbacks, Mike Riley, another graduate of Wally Buono's school of CFL quarterbacks. He started with the BC Lions, stayed here for three years, then moved on to the Edmonton Eskimos, where he became one of the CFL's best players. In fact, last year he was the most outstanding player in the CFL. And he'll be here on Thursday to face the BC Lions again. A team he beat rather handily early in the season, despite a shaky start. I think, you know, it shows you lots. I mean, obviously they have a lot of weapons, and when you have the league's most valuable player, uh, you know, it's like I think we should have let the sleeping giant sleep. And, uh, you know, we got after him pretty good. We hit him pretty good, but I'm not sure that that didn't wake him up. So, you know, Edmonton is like most teams. They got, uh, you know, great quarterbacking. Uh, they have a very good running game. They got big time receivers. You know, and offensively, they're a handful. We mentioned yesterday that game one of the Canadian Soccer Championship tomorrow at BC Place between the Whitecaps and Toronto will look, at least from the Whitecaps' perspective, like a Major League Soccer game. Vancouver wants to win this thing, so they're going with the A team minus BA Baracus. 
but it does mean Alfonso Davies and Kai Kamara will be leading the offense. I know with this, you know, puts you in the Champions League and all that. So for me, I always want to win something, and this is going to be something uh, big, and I can't wait to uh, play in the final. There it is. A lot of guys here that haven't, you know, won championships before, and uh, we walk into this facility every day. There's a big picture when you walk in for from when the team won the the cup, and there's probably I think three or four players that's under that's that's been here before. So hopefully we can change that, and uh, some of us can be in that picture. One of Canada's best young NBA players was at the Richmond Oval today working out with uh, one of the country's top basketball programs. Jamal Murray was helping out Pasha Baines' drive program. So many kids there today, they needed all of the Oval to accommodate them. And he's my favorite player in the NBA. Let's give Jamal a hand for being here. Out of that, Murray from downtown. That again. Murray's got some confidence now, doesn't he? Puts it up. Yes! Jamal Murray is Canada's latest export to the NBA. The 21-year-old is coming off a successful sophomore season with the Denver Nuggets, averaging just under 17 points a game. He's a rising star for the Nuggets, and he's spending a week of his summer in Richmond hosting the Jamal Murray Drive Basketball Camp. How cool is it for you to give back and, and be out here with all these kids because they're, they're pumped to see you? you know, it's a lot of fun, especially when they're so excited. Uh, I get to be here and make the day and jump in, have some fun with them and teach some new stuff. Drive Basketball has been hosting hoops camps for 12 years now. Every year attendance has grown, much like the number of kids dribbling a basketball here in Canada. This year, 180 children from the ages of 6 to 16 have overtaken the Richmond Oval to take part in the week-long camp. Whenever you have a facility like the Oval and you have six courts at your disposal, like as a kid, I used to hear about these big, big basketball camps where NBA players would come down and, you know, they would just pack a whole auditorium, maybe even nine courts. So when I saw this, I'd always said, you know, my dream would be to have a drive camp, bring in an NBA player and just have, have blow it up and just have like a hoops extravaganza for a week. So I think that's what we're doing. Murray's got it. Seeing Jamal Murray in action and then being on the same court as him is an instant outlet pass to Canada's hoop stars of tomorrow. It's that, more available court time, and quality coaching, which has vaulted basketball into the third most popular team sport in Canada, behind soccer and hockey. For me, when I was coming up, I was, we couldn't even get in the gym. I was hooping on outdoor courts and stuff, so um, just to you know, be able to come in the gym and have a full gym full of guys ready to play and, and wanting to play is great. Basketball right now is representing Vancouver's melting pot perfectly. Um, you know, you see all the different races and ethnicities getting together and basketball is the easiest sport to practice. You know, all you need is a ball and a hoop and imagination and I think that still rings true today is that you have kids that just can play. Jay Janower, Global Sports. Ball's bigger than some That's of the kids. Cute. All right, Dennis Shapovalov, Jeremy Charty at the Rogers Cup. Shapovalov looking strong. Oh. Wow, that's a good point. Won the first set rather easily. 6-1, Shapovalov did. Charlie had some issues with the net. Seemed a little higher for him than it did, Shapovalov. Match point. Shapovalov straight set win. Well, the great Stan Mikita died today at the age of 78. A Hockey Hall of Famer played his entire career with the Chicago Blackhawks. Won the scoring title four times, was the MVP twice, won the Stanley Cup once. In his early years in the NHL, he was one of the most penalized players in the game. Then he got rehabilitated and became one of the least penalized players. And of course, we've done a lot of 
pop culture references on this show. You might remember Wayne's World, mm-hmm. the donut shop was called Stan Makita Donuts. Coming up on ET Canada, it's after The Bachelorette and Becca defends her controversial decision. Plus, meet the villains from this season's Bachelor in Paradise. All of that is coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to you, Sophie. Thank you, Cheryl. It's just weird. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, the whole thing's just weird. I I know I'm a little late (laughs) to the game on that, but... Uh, Well, big companies are tapping into a new market when it comes to promoting their brands. You know this guy, featured in our next story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gone are the recognizable faces now being replaced by social media influencers. And you don't have to be, I did air quote that. And you don't have to be a grown-up to get people buying or make the big bucks. The world's biggest retailer is turning to a six-year-old named Ryan for help. The popular toy-reviewing YouTube star of Ryan's World, with his parents showing off the new line of toys he's created for Walmart. The company trying to take advantage of his nearly 1 billion monthly video views that generate an estimated $11 million a year, making the first grader the youngest person on Forbes' list of highest-paid YouTube stars. And just the latest social media influencer jumping from their own pages into the retail world. When it comes to YouTube in particular, I think that retailers and brands are really trying to target the younger demographic, younger generation. Kids really are trusting influencers because they see them as being relatable, slightly aspirational, but really they consider them a trusted resource. Instagram star Ariel Charnas will sell a line of clothing at Nordstrom. Even dogs like Aspen, the outdoor-loving golden retriever with 37,000 Instagram followers, hawks products for Garmin and Oru kayaks. A lot of people are interested in the gear that I'm using in my pictures. 40% of shoppers say they've purchased an item after seeing an influencer use it on social media. 70% of 18 to 34-year-olds would rather buy a product endorsed by a non-celebrity. Kohl's and Target are pursuing the same strategy, and so far it seems to be working. Some of Ryan's new toys at Walmart have already sold out. That's a they good point. They become celebrities. They become celebrities and once they become celebrity. well-known. You know this kid. Well, you don't know him. My but. son watches them all the time. So weird. All right, as we say goodnight, please pray for camera one. <laughs> there it is. Sad face camera Apparently one. Apparently he can't move, right? <laughs> He'll Suffering get better, camera temporary one. Temporary paralysis. But he'll get better. <laughs>